Ashley here. Hey, can we give the band just one more hand? That was awesome.
So today my hope is that we start to think and to say, what can we do now so that when we get to the end of our lives, we can look back and say, you know what, I wasn't perfect, but I did everything I could to leave a legacy of faith and hope in Jesus. Our relationship goal for today, we go through these different goals each week, is to say, I will intentionally model what I want to echo into future generations. That I want to live today in a way that my actions are going to echo into my children, my grandchildren, my great-grandchildren. See, the problem is so many of our homes today are not characterized as places of peace or places of intentionality. Instead, I think if you look at a lot of our houses, we'd say, man, there's a little conflict or tension or strife. I don't need to relate to that. But I believe that God wants something so much better for us than relationship strife, conflict, or simply just drifting through our lives and marriages and not living with intentionality. So some of you might be like, yeah, you're talking my language, Eric. Yeah, I wish we didn't have so much conflict and strife in our homes right now, in our family. There's a lot of dysfunction right now in my family, but Eric, it's not my fault. How many of you guys would say that, right? It's not my fault, it's, it's somebody else. See, the reality is, in every family, there's someone inside that family who really is an incredibly difficult person to deal with. That's just kind of the truth. Like, you got that one uncle or, you know, that, that, that person in your family that's really tough to deal with. How many of you would say, yeah, there's someone in my family that's incredibly hard to deal with? Yeah, raise your hands. Get a lot of hands up. All right. So the truth is, keep hands up. There's someone in your family that's incredibly difficult to deal with. If your hand is not up, it's probably you, okay? That's just, I'm just saying, all right? There's someone that's going to be the tough one. But see, relationships are tough. They aren't easy, especially in our families. Maybe you're trying to raise kids and your mom keeps looking over your shoulder, giving you advice, and you're like, just stay out of it, mom. And there's tension between you and your mom, or maybe it's with your kids, you fight all the time. And, and you find that, you know, when you speak to your kids, all of a sudden your mom's coming out of your mouth. Maybe you had that experience, but that never happened yet. Maybe you count to three, with your kids, nothing happens. You count to five, nothing happens. So then you just go upstairs and take a bubble bath, and you're like, you should give up, right? How many have been there? Yeah. Maybe you're the kid, you raise some teenagers back there, and you're like, when are my parents ever going to give me my own phone? When are my parents ever going to give me my own Instagram account? I see you back there. Yeah? And you're like, man, whoa, why is it so hard? Maybe you're in a blended home. We have a lot of blended marriages here, and you're trying to raise your kids and her kids and our kids, and it is just so complicated. You're like, how can there ever be peace in our home with all these moving parts? Well, luckily, Family dysfunction and chaos and, and just being hard. It's not something that's new. It's something that's been going on for thousands of years. And when we look at the story of the Bible, we see so much family dysfunction. See, a lot of times with, our, with the kids' ministry and stuff like that, you know, we, we share stories of, you know, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And because it's kids' ministry, a lot of times we kind of leave them a little shiny and, and, you know, perfect. But the reality is, these people in the Bible are just as messed up and broken as you and me. They are not heroes of the faith. They're simply in the Bible because God chose them and loved them and gave them grace. They're no better than you and I, amen? You look at Abraham who lied about his wife and said, hey, say you're my sister so people don't, like, try to kill me and steal you. Then Isaac, who did the same thing as his father, 
Then you have Jacob. Jacob had 13 kids with four different women. I mean, talk about like, you know, professional athletes like that. That's who Jacob was. Like, kids, 13 kids, four different women. Well, Jacob had two sons with his favorite woman, his favorite wife, Joseph and Benjamin. And Jacob loved Joseph more than all his other kids. And so, what did that cause in that family? Man, it caused a lot of jealousy and brokenness. And those other brothers, man, they saw how favored Joseph was treated. So they beat him up, they throw him in a pit, they sell him into slavery. Joseph gets carted off to Egypt, where he ends up as a slave. And if that's not bad enough, he gets falsely accused and thrown into prison. Beaten up, thrown in a pit, falsely accused, ends up in prison. Despite all that, God is with him. See, our uncertainty when we look at the world is not evidence of God's inactivity. Right now, you may be in a place where you feel very uncertain. You're not sure what's going on in your marriage, in your career, with your kids. But I want you to know that God's word tells us that just because we are uncertain, it is not evidence of God's inactivity. Our uncertainty. But what's going on is not evidence of God's inactivity. See, even when we don't see God, he's there working behind the scenes. And after 13 years in prison, this isn't like a week, this isn't like a year. 13 years in prison, God raises Joseph up. And like a really good hip-hop story, he goes from prison to bling and becomes the prime minister of Egypt. It's a pretty amazing story. Well, now it's been 20 years, seven years since Joseph has seen his brothers. And the Bible says there's a great famine across all the lands. And because of this, Joseph's family back in Palestine is slowly starving to death because there's no food. So we're going to pick up our story in Genesis 42. You can follow along uh, in your own Bible app or on the, the words here behind me. We're going to actually be going through a lot of scripture today, so we're going to go pretty quick. Um, but before that, we just draw me in a word of prayer. God, I thank you that you are the chain breaker, that you are the one who steps into our mess and brokenness and offers hope and healing and salvation through Jesus. So God, I pray that this morning my words would bring encouragement and hope. God, that you would inspire us to think about future generations, how to leave a legacy. God, that the words in my mouth and meditation, my mind be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, oh God. God, that you would speak into everyone's life here what they need to hear. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Genesis 42, verse 1 through 5. When Jacob, he's the father of the patriarch, learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why are you standing around looking at each other? He said, Behold, I heard there was grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there, that we may live and not die. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel, or that's the other name for Jacob, came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. So the two sons that Jacob had, the one woman that he really loved, were Benjamin and Joseph. They're 100% blood brothers. And Jacob thought that Joseph was dead. That left Benjamin as the baby and the favorite. So he's going to keep Benjamin and send his other ten cents off to Egypt. Unfortunately, his other brothers, apparently they are disposable. It's not very fun. 
Genesis 42, verse 6. Now Joseph was governor of the land. They didn't know this. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. So they don't realize their brother is the one who's now governor. And Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from, he said. They said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. They didn't recognize him. They didn't recognize their baby brother because it's been 21 years. You change a lot from the age of 17 to 37, right? Like, have you ever looked at your high school pictures? I love looking at guys of like their wedding pictures, and it's like, whoa, what happened? <laughs> it's like, well, my wife, my wife, she like loves to cook. And it's like, apparently, like she's like way to run off on her. That's a thing, you know? Why is it that women look the same or better and guys not so much? It's just true. But you know, over 20 years, you change, you look different. And now Joseph is also Egyptian. He's got the Egyptian haircut going on, and the eyeliner, and the Egyptian clothes. And they don't recognize him. But he recognizes them. And so what he's going to do is Joseph's going to mess with his brothers a little bit. So team boys back there, you should know, it's biblical to mess with people. It's okay. It's right here in the Bible. He's actually going to test them. Because see, if someone has done evil to you, then comes and confesses that and asks for forgiveness. You need to make sure they've changed before you trust them again. If you take notes this morning, you write this down, but there's a difference between forgiveness and reconciliation. There's a difference between forgiveness and reconciliation. We're commanded to forgive people, to not hold that against them. To let go of the offense that hurt. But reconciliation is renewing of the relationship. It's saying, I trust you again. We can be close. See, we can forgive people because God will help us do that, but to trust them again, they've got to earn that back. So Joseph, he's going to mess with his brothers a little bit. He's going to set up some scenarios to see, can I trust you? Have you really changed? Are you still the same brothers who beat me up, threw me in prison, and sold me off as a slave? So Joseph puts his brothers in prison, the same prison he spent 13 years in. Only this time he only puts them in there for three days, just to test them a little bit. I was thinking about that. Like, how awesome would it be to have your own prison, right? You know, it's like, man, Matt, you're walking around the same country, he's like, you're in prison. You know, like, you come out and, and you drive, you're, you're going to prison. Like, man, that would, you wouldn't need therapy, right, if you had your own prison? That's what Joseph has here. Uh, verse 18, on the third day, Joseph said to them, do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody. Let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households, and bring your youngest brother to me. So your words may be verified, and you shall not die. And they did so. Then they said to one another, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, and that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us, and we did not listen. That is why this distress is called upon us. The other brothers are confessing their sin. They're saying, man, all this has happened to us because of how we treated Joseph 20 years ago. We thought we got away with it, but apparently not. And they're beginning to acknowledge their sin. They don't know that Joseph can speak Hebrew and he's listening to them. And this is where Joseph is testing them because before he can trust them again, he needs to make sure that they've actually changed. So the brothers leave behind Simeon, one of the brothers behind have a hostage. They take the grain back to their family. Well, eventually the food runs out. So what are they going to do now? Simeon's back in Egypt, kind of rotten in prison. They're taking the grain. And Joseph says, you're not going to get this brother back until you prove to me that you have this younger brother, Benjamin. Uh, chapter 43, verse 1. Now the famine was severe in the land, and when they had eaten the grain they had bought from Egypt, their father said to them, Go again, buy us a little food. 
But Judah, who's one of the older brothers, said to him, The man solemnly warned us, saying, You shall not see my face unless your brother, Benjamin, is with you. If you will send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. Judah, he's one of the older brothers. Now we covered some of this two years ago when we went to the book of Genesis, but if you remember, Judah up until this point, is he a good guy? Is he a bad guy? He's a bad guy. He's the one who had the idea to sell his brother Joseph into slavery. He's the one who lied to their father to say that Joseph was actually torn apart by wild animals. He raised two godless, terrible boys, you read in the Bible. He was a failure as a son. He was a failure as a husband. He was a failure as a father. His two sons were so bad, the Bible tells us that God struck them down dead. And then, after his wife died, Judah's wife died, he's feeling lonely, so he picks up a prostitute by the side of the road. Only, it wasn't actually a prostitute, it was his daughter-in-law, Tamar. And he gets his dead son's widow wife pregnant. Now he's raising a kid with his dead son's wife. I mean, this is not a good guy. But now Judah is going to step up to speak to his father, Jacob. What's Judah going to say? Verse 8. And Judah said to Israel, his father, Send the boy with me, and we will rise and go. That we live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. I will be a pledge of a safety. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. This is a big moment. This is a big moment in Judah's life and the family of God. Judah, who's not a young man anymore, he's probably somewhere in his 40s or 50s. And guys, I want you to make careful note of what happens in his life. So far in Genesis, God has revealed himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Three generations. But now Judah becomes the head of the family to the fourth generation. Up until this point, he's not a good guy. He's been a thug, a failed husband, a failed father, a failed brother. His sons are dead. He's a pervert. But he changes right here. He gets a clean slate. This is a changed life in Judah. And it's this. Judah takes responsibility. This is the essence of manhood. Responsibility. The essence of maturity is responsibility. See, a boy does not take responsibility, but a man welcomes it gladly. That's the difference between men and boys. In our culture, men are encouraged to stay boys and not take responsibility. I don't want to get a job. That's too much responsibility. I don't want to get married. That's too much responsibility. I don't want to have kids. That's too much responsibility. I don't want to lead a ministry at the church. That's too much responsibility. I don't want to lead a week with small group. That's too much responsibility. But the world needs more men who are going to step up and lead and take responsibility. Amen? And Judah gets that right here. Judah says, you know what? I'm going to do what's best for the women and the children. I'm going to do what's best for our family, for our people. I'm not going to do what's just best for me. I did that. I was drinking instead of raising my kids, and God struck them dead. I got my daughter-in-law pregnant because I thought she was a prostitute. I sold my brother into slavery. I need to make a change. I need to start living for God and for other people. And Judah gets it. This is his day of transformation. Some of you in this room have made that change. You've stepped up and you've taken responsibility. The essence of manhood is responsibility. Say, this is my life, this is my body, these are my finances, this is my wife, my kids, my gospel, my city, my church. You can blame me. Put some responsibility on my back. I can carry it. 
That's a man. And today, Judah, 40-something, 50-something, he becomes a man. He looks at his daddy in his eyes and he says, Dad, you can trust me. I'm going to step up. I'm going to lead. I'm going to take responsibility. What an amazing day for his father. Maybe for the very first time, seeing his son Judah, who's been such a screw-up, become a man. This is when Judah becomes a patriarch. He says, things are going to change. You can trust me. He doesn't just make promises. He actually delivers. What a great day for his dad. Now Judah becomes fit for the line of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Judah. He becomes a man. Because God is working on Judah's heart. And who eventually comes to the line of Judah? Who is descended from that baby that Judah had with Tamar, his dead son's wife? Jesus. Jesus, the lion of the tribe of Judah. Not Joseph, not Benjamin. Judah. I think it's amazing what God can do through a broken, messed up family. And whatever family circumstances you come from, God can redeem it. God can break those chains of generational sin and curses and bring something beautiful out of it. Because Judah stepped up, marries Tamar, raises his kids, that's where David comes from. That's where Jesus comes from. Not Joseph. Judah. Man. So now, Judah's going to lead his brother. He's stepping up, back down to Egypt. And where do they go? First time they go down to Egypt, they end up in jail. Second time, we find out they're going to end up at Joseph's house. Now, I thought, well, this is kind of scary. Like, this is... You're in some small town, and like the sheriff pulls you over, and like he puts you in jail. And the next time you come back, he pulls you over, and he's like, hey, I recognize you. Come on, you're coming over to my house. And it's like, man, I've seen this show on Netflix, right? Like, they're never gonna find my body. That's what they're thinking. And so Joseph takes him into their house and prepares a meal in front of him. 4329, he says, he looked up his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? God be gracious to you, my son. This is his biological blood brother, same mother, same dad. But he hasn't seen his little brother in 21 years. Joseph didn't need to grow up with this kid. Some of you come from this a, a fractured family, a broken family. It's a mess. You've got half siblings, cousins maybe you haven't seen in years. This is his brother. He didn't get to grow up with him. He didn't go swimming with him. He didn't get to play with him. He missed 21 years of life with his kid brother. Now he's in his house. Verse 33. And they sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthright, and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked at one another in amazement. Portions were taken to them from Joseph's table. But Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs. And they drank and were merry with him. So they're sitting down to this fat dinner. It's like Golden Corral, Sunday brunch. You know, they're having a good meal. They're getting fed from Joseph's portions. And it's like, man, this is a lot of food. Much better than jail. Much better than being in a famine. But Benjamin, the little, little's brother, is getting five times as much as anyone else. That was kind of weird. They're, they're sitting there, and it's like, okay, steak for Simeon, steak for Judah, you know, steak for Reuben, five steaks for Benjamin. It's like slice of cake, slice of cake, slice of cake, whole cake for Benjamin. Like, people go, what is going on? This isn't normal. The youngest brother usually doesn't get the most food. Why does 
Joseph do this? It seems kind of weird. Like, what, what's going on here? We could easily blow past this. But here's the point. Previously, Joseph was the kid brother who was highly favored. And how did the older brothers respond? With intense jealousy, they beat him up, they sold him into slavery. Now, Benjamin is the kid brother. And Joseph's going to show favoritism to Benjamin to see how the other brothers are going to react. This is the final test. If they start talking Hebrew among themselves, whoa, what's going on here? We've got to whack Benjamin too and sell him into slavery, right? Then Joseph knows the brothers haven't changed. But if they go, wow, praise God, Benjamin, like steaks, steaks, you get five steaks, like that's awesome, like we're all blessed, but Benjamin's getting super blessed, then they know, Joseph knows he can trust them and they've had a change of heart. So he's listening to them speaking in, but they don't know that he can understand them. If you take a note, it's okay to test people before you trust them. It's okay to see how they respond before you give them responsibility, before you trust them. The Apostle Paul says this about leaders in our church. Don't be hasty in the laying on of hands. Test them before you embrace them and trust them. People ask me, why do we have partnership here at Mosaic? Can we all just be together? It's testing people before you trust them. And say, hey, come to a meeting to find out a little bit more about who we are. Then we want everyone who's in leadership goes to say, you know, I've stepped up in front of everyone. And I'm boldly proclaiming that Jesus is my leader and my Savior. We do that by identifying with his death, burial, and resurrection by going under the water and coming back up. If you're baptized as a baby, that's not wrong. That was an incredibly significant event in the life of your parents. And by stepping in front of everyone, by boldly proclaiming, I'm a follower of Jesus, that's the fulfillment of the hope that your parents had when they baptized you as a child. And then we want you just to meet with one of the members of our governing team, which is me and, and five other leaders in our church, and just to have a conversation. And then the leaders in our church can say, hey, here are the people that are partnering together. They have say in, in the direction of our church. Because it's okay to test people to get to know them before you put a lot of trust in them. That's why we have a process for this. If someone's hurt you, it's okay to test them before you trust them again. You can forgive them, but before you reconcile, you should give them a little time. Make sure they've actually changed. Or we're going to jump ahead in the story a little bit. Genesis 45, verse 1. They're at this dinner, and Joseph's testing them, and then he passed the test. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? Shocking. But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. Like, what? This is our kid brother that we beat up and sold as a slave. So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near, with fear and trembling, I'm guessing. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves, because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He's made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen and shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children, set the legacy, and your flocks, your herds, and all that you have. There I will provide for you. For there are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see, the eyes of my brother Benjamin see, that is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father all my honor in Egypt and all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. That he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and he wept. 
and then and wept upon his neck. And he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. This is an amazing story. 20 years later, after being hurt and betrayed, Joseph gives them supreme mercy and grace. He falls on their neck and they weep and they're reconciled. How was Joseph able to do this? How was Joseph able to forgive his brothers and be reconciled to him? I mean, it's honestly hard to believe to not hold a grudge, to not try to you know, put them in their place. How can he forgive them? Well, if you're walking through the story of God in Genesis, you have to go back to a story with a little detail that's so easy to miss. It's the story of J Joseph's father, Jacob, and his brother, Esau. See, Jacob, Joseph's father, was a liar, was a trickster, who deceived his brother Esau and stole his brother's birthright. He stole the blessing. And how did Esau respond to Jacob after 20 years of not seeing his brother? We're going to look at that in Genesis 33 as we wrap up today. And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming. Esau, his brother that he cheated 20 years before, and 400 men with him. Esau has his own personal army. And Jacob's like, oh no, I'm in trouble. So he divided his children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants that he had kids with. And he put the servants and their children in front, the two kind of women on the side that he doesn't care about as much, and their kids. Then Leah with her children, which is Judah and his brothers. And then Rachel, the one woman he loved, and Joseph last of all, Benjamin had been born. And he himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. And when Esau lifted up his eyes, saw the women of the children, he said, Who are these with you? Jacob said, The children God has graciously given you, sir. These are all your nephews and your niece. Then the servants drew near, there and the children bowed down, and he likewise, and her children drew and bowed down. At last, Joseph and Rachel drew near, and they bowed down. See, Joseph saw firsthand his uncle Esau forgive his father. After his uncle was betrayed, and his father was a trickster, was a liar, was a deceiver. Joseph sees that although his father deserves wrath and retribution, Joseph sees his uncle Esau forgive his brother, fall upon his neck with weeping and forgiveness. Decades later, Joseph is in the same situation. And I think Joseph remembers what his uncle Esau did. How he forgave his brother. How he didn't hold it against him. And how does he respond? The same way that his uncle responded. With forgiveness and reconciliation. With weeping. Here's my point. That you and I are who we are because of the family that have gone before us. And the family that comes after you. Your kids, your grandkids, your nieces, your nephews. They they are because of what they've seen in their life. You are the model for how your kids are going to respond. 
You may not know it, but you are modeling how your nephews today to be a chain breaker. One of my favorite movies of all time, the movie Gladiator. It's a kind of old movie now. But Maximus tells his, his men that what we do in life echoes into eternity. And see, bottom line, that our actions don't just speak louder than words, that our actions echo into the next generation. That what we do today echoes into the next generation. How we live now affects how our children will respond, how our grandchildren will respond, how our nieces and nephews and their children will respond. Maybe someday I'll be blessed to be a grandfather or great-grandfather like my grandfather with 47 great-grandchildren. What I do now echoes into those generations. What my grandfather did by being married to my grandma for almost 70 years is echoing into future generations. The decisions you are making right now will echo deeper than you will ever know. I want to encourage you this week, as we wrap up, to spend some time thinking through what are the character traits? What are the things I want, the values to have that I want my kids, my grandkids, my great-grandkids to have? To write those down. To think about the end in mind. To think about how do I want to model the relationships I have now? Whether that's with my spouse or with extended family, with your parents. Because what we do, how we live now, has huge consequences. How we live now echoes into future generations. The examples we set now can set up the next generation for success, to live in grace and mercy. Or we can be people that are driven by selfishness and greed and busyness and it mean all about us and holding a grudge by leaving when it gets hard. And that will be passed down to the future generations. But no matter where you come from, whatever broken mess of family is in your heritage, or whether it's a great family, you have the opportunity right now to break those chains, say, God, no more. With your help, I'm going to set a new example. Maybe you don't come from a line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Maybe you are the first one in your line who is walking with Jesus. And God's going to use it to set a whole new family. The God of Eric and Joshua. The God of Matthew and Emmett and his son. The God of Mike and Judah and his son. We have the chance to set the trajectory of what our family is going to look like years and years from now. Maybe there's someone in your family who has hurt you, who has betrayed you. And you need to forgive them. I want to encourage you to do that. You can only do that with God's help. We never look more like God than when we forgive. Because we've all messed up against God, but God forgave us. So as we go out of here this morning, I want you to think, number one, is there someone you need to forgive? Is there someone you need to let go of that hurt? 
to move forward in freedom. Maybe you won't be reconciled in that relationship, and that's okay. Maybe you've been holding on to bitterness in your heart, and it's just poisoning the insides. And you need to let go of that. How your father treated you, or your mother, an ex-spouse, you need to let go. And is there something you need to take responsibility for? In your life, in your finances, in your marriage, in your home? Is there something you need to step up and say, you know what? Put some responsibility on my back. I can carry that. Maybe it's at work. Maybe it's in your family. Maybe it's in your church. And you realize, you know what? I haven't been taking responsibility. I need to take responsibility. I believe God wants such amazing things for us. And God has a plan for each and every one of you and your families, your nieces, your nephews, your children, your grandchildren. Imagine if all of us lived lives of forgiveness, we broke generational curses, and we lived intentionally now so that our children, our grandchildren can be set up to live a life of blessing and hope. Will you stand with me? God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the story of Jacob and Esau and Joseph and his brothers. God, I pray that if there's something in our hearts that we need to forgive and let go of, God, that through your Holy Spirit, God, we'd be able to let go of that so we can find healing. God, I pray for the wisdom to know if we should reconcile relationships and, and to move back into relationship or if we need to keep high boundaries. And God, I pray that you would speak to each one of us the areas in, in, of our life that we take responsibility for, our health, our finances, our spiritual walk, our parenting, our marriage, whatever that might be, God. That we'd step up and say, you know what? We're going to make a change today. Because what we do now is going to echo into future generations. Thank you, God. In your name we pray. Amen. I receive the benediction. May you know that God loves you. He so loves you. He has a plan for you and for your family, and he wants to echo into future generations his love and his grace for what you're going to do today. Have a great week. We'll see you next Sunday.